Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students and an online program looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. This is uh, your host, Jordan Harris, and today I have someone who I'm very excited to have on, Jesse Owen, who is, um, to my mind, on the forefront of multicultural research in therapy. So I'm super excited to have you on today, Jesse. Um, why don't you give us a brief introduction into yourself and what you're sort of doing now? Sure. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me and uh, welcome all. My name is Jesse Owen. I'm a professor here at the University of Denver in the counseling psych department. I have been studying psychotherapy for almost 16, 17 years now. And my main interest has been um, looking at multicultural processes. How do we help reduce disparities? How do we help therapists connect better? With their clients, especially their clients of color and, and marginalized backgrounds, and to do it in a way that's natural and not uh, forced or you know superficial. So, kind of a deep integration of how multiculturalism can influence practice and ultimately help practice. Great. So I think the true value of most of this stuff. I know we'll get into this more, but that's really my hope with all of this is to really help people get better results and. I think this is one way to do it. I also have uh, other kind of tidbits about me. I'm the current editor of Psychotherapy, the flagship journal for the Society for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. And I also do have a private practice. It's pretty small, but I, I still see clients. And uh, I enjoy that merger of practice and research and research to practice. Cool, man. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're one of those people who I think of who walks softly but carries a big stick. Right, like, 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 such an approachable guy. I think in my interaction with you, so um, committed to giving everyone a seat at the table, almost unassuming. But like, your credentials and what you've done is like really impressive. You know, like, you're the editor of a major journal, right? Like, that's huge. That's such a cool thing. So, yeah, sometimes uh, I have to remind them. Oh yeah, I guess I am the editor. <laughs> I should do something about that today. <laughs> it's a labor of love. I love the journal, and I I um, have even prior to being editor, I was associate editor for ten years, and got a chance to do even some special sections on multicultural processes, which was just a great um, special section. And and sadly, it was only the third special section on multicultural processes, specifically of the journal's history. And so I'm hoping to bring just kind of a more steady stream of multicultural articles, case studies, you name it to the journal. So if you're out there listening, reach out and see what we can do to promote the cause. So let's also interesting. I'm the only, I'm the first uh, racial minority uh, editor for the journal's history too, in 50 wow. plus years. In 50 years, and you've been on, you've been the journal editor for how many years? So this is, uh, so I started 2020 as editor uh, and I was 10 years prior to that as associate editor. editor. So what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Like how many hours every week does that take up? Probably about 10 to 15 hours. So every new submission I read and I- You read all of the articles? Every single Wow. Week, yeah. And then um, <laughs> I, fortunately, I have, uh, I have five associate editors. And so I have the pleasure of working with other folks to make sure and spread the wealth. And so that's, that's nice, but I do take on the bulk of uh, manuscripts and, uh, and ultimately any final decision rests with me. Uh, and so I, I want to make sure that I know what I'm signing my name to. And I think Absolutely. That's, just fair to, that's fair to the author, it's fair to the process, and, and, and it's right for the field. You know, like, you know, do things right. And um, who is your journal pro primarily for, right? So my program. Most of the people who listen to this are, are, are students. We're an MFT program, right? So our big journal is a journal of uh, marital and family therapy. So for you guys, and of course, I mean, I've read a bunch of articles that you guys have put out, right? By Walmpold and Lambert and a few other people, but who is your journal primarily for? So our journal does a nice thing. It, it, it speaks to clinicians, like probably about half our readership are clinicians and the other half uh, to researchers. So even when we have kind of research heavy pieces, the, the charge that I have for the authors is the discussion at least has to like put it into practice. Like you really have to 
illustrate what you're doing. And my charge for a lot of folks is give us some verbatim dialogue of what, what whatever thing you're studying would look like in session. Because that's what readers really want to know, right? Like, it's great to think about like a rupture repair cycle, for instance, but like, what does that actually sound like? How do you actually repair that rupture in session? That's a whole different, that's a whole different animal. And if you're a clinician, knowing that rupture repair is related to better outcomes, sure, that's a good thing to know, but how do I do it, right? And so what we want in the journal at least is to have a sense of how do you do it and what does it look like? Like bring it to life, right? That's kind of what we, want to know and I, I love it i love the jmft journal uh, one of the other things maybe that might be important for folks listening to this is I, I also do a fair bit of couples therapy studies and relationship education studies and so my other kind of foot in the psychotherapy world is in kind of a home away from homes it's is the mft world because i love couples therapy and um, don't ask me to do family therapy but at least couples i, I enjoy Family therapy is a whole beast, uh, like by itself, man. I totally agree. Um, what? Yeah, that's off to those who. Yeah. yeah, it's a. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, I think that's something that's really interesting. I, as you're saying that, I'm looking, I'm thinking back through some some of my favorite articles, and um, they have exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, like almost like the last section before the conclusion, they have two or three paragraphs of like, this is what the therapist might say. This is how, this is how a client might r respond. And I think most of those articles came out of the psychotherapy journal. So maybe that's where a guy hadn't made that connection, but yeah. I actually submitted, so I developed a program for high conflict child custody dispute cases and it's called the Working Together Program. We did a, a pilot run of it and we submitted it to JMFT. And one of the things that I thought was so courageous of the editor there, and it sticks in my mind to this day, because I was, I was a pretty early on um, at that point when I was publishing this. And I remember the editor saying, you know, your discussion section isn't completely connected to your results, but I love it because I actually know what, I, I feel what your program does. And I was like, thank you for giving me some leeway here. You know, like, I'm not trying to say this is the best program ever, that it's going to be super efficacious down the road, but thanks for at least giving me the opportunity to like, bring it to life because you know these couples were hurting like i mean these were like court mandated you know can't mediate kind of cases and their kids were ultimately hurting as you as you know jordan like those cases are just heart-wrenching but again like just having the opportunity to expand on that uh, that's why i think journals where i think journals need to really go yeah and you were saying a second ago and we're going to get into all of your mco research in just a bit but you were saying also that you do a lot of couples research. What are, what are some of the big things that you see in your couples research? So the one thing that, that, like, if I had to pick a thing that I'm really passionate about in couples therapy is this concept of commitment uncertainty. Because one of the interesting things, like, if you read, and, and I love, like, Sue Johnson's work. I love, you know, the, the Jacobson and Christensen's work. All of those folks who are doing really cool models for couples therapy. Um, kind of start with the premise that the couple wants to stay together. And a lot of the techniques are to help them stay together. But like if you, like some of our work has been focusing on like, do people really want to stay together from the gate? And like, even in the work that I was doing with couples in my private practice, I was noticing like, you two don't even want to stay together. And yet you, you're kind of here, but like, are we going to name this? Or are we just going to kind of move ahead with the assumption that we're it's all going to well, we'll just try this out, though, and, like, see what happens. <laughs> you know, like, sometimes couples say that, and you're like, but the base of the, the, the basic commitment is not even there. Yeah, and so in one of our studies, and this is my, one of my favorite studies uh, on this point, and then jump off to other things. I was, it was a collaboration with Morton Anchor in Norway, and it was a couple's goal study. And what Morton did is he collected uh, this basic question. Are you here to improve your relationship, clarify your relationship, or end your relationship? One question, just those three check boxes, you, you figured it out. 90% of the couples where both people said they wanted to stay together, six months later, they were still together. 90% still together. If one partner or the other was kind of on the fence, it was about a 50-50 shot um, if they're going to be together in six months. <laughs> and so like that question, I mean, just that one simple question is super predictive. And like, honestly, like when I got trained as a couples therapist, I'm not sure if this is true for you, but like, 
I never got trained on like, how do you assess if they want to stay together or not? Like what's the best approaches to it? Um, Bill Doherty up in Minnesota has discernment counseling, like basically set up a program to figure out, do you want to stay together or not? And I thought his work up there is just, fan I mean, he's just a fantastic uh, researcher and practitioner, but like that program speaks to exactly this issue where we're just not training people right. And we're not, a, we're not doing justice for couples if we, if we skip this question. So. Man, you are blowing my mind. I, I recently found out what discernment counseling was because I had heard about it, but I didn't know what it was. And then I, it, it is one of those things of once you are exposed to the idea, you're like, of course, like, I'm like of course, like, of course, yeah. of course. And you start looking back through all your clients, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, 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 yes, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish I wish Bill would have named it something different, but because uh, discernment seems kind of, I mean, it's, a, it's an accurate you know, description of what's what the actual thing is, but it's not catchy. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's almost um, uh, stages of change, right? But for for couples, like like where are we? You know, it's almost the same type of type of stuff. Totally, and so like a lot of my work and what I've been trying to unpack with this is um you know what what should you do as a therapist right because couples typically will come in and be like well if we communicated better then i'll stay with you or if this thing changed then i'll stay with you right so cart horse like which one which where do you go and so i think there's some pretty tricky clinical decisions and it's i don't think it's very clear where we go but like i do think if commitment's on the table it's got to be on the table for like first and foremost but if it's not on the table like if it's in that kind of 50-50 land, then maybe you put commitment on the side and really work on the issues first and then kind of keep checking in about the commitment levels. But so there anyways, there I, isn't I like there 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 isn't a straight way forward then like, well, if they come in and one person's on the fence, then you do this. Right. Wow. The one thing that we did find in that study, I mean the good news was that like when both people agreed to make the relationship better, they, they were still together six months later, like ninety percent. Like that's a pretty good finding for the field. Um, we didn't actually have, um, when one person says they want to terminate, we didn't have a ton of couples in that category, but, um, like, I think there's like eight couples where one person said, I want to end the relationship. And like six out of those eight were over in six months. The other two, we couldn't follow up with. So like, basically if somebody says it's over, it, it's over, you know, you should probably count on that. You know, I wonder if this also gets into this question of like natural process of the disease, right? Which is borrowed from medicine, but um, as you know, you're a researcher who likes talks about outcomes and I'm a, a therapist geek who reads research on, on outcomes. And something that I think we see a lot um, when we look at other fields, is other fields, especially like medicine, they also tell you what is the natural progress of the disease, right? And so what that allows you then yeah. to do is say, if 90% of people will get better anyway, um, then this treatment probably isn't what caused them to get better, right? Um, because the, 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 the natural course of the, of the disease is you'd get better anyway, right? Um, and I don't think that we have that in therapy. And so when you're, when you're saying this, part of what it's making me think of is, yeah. I'm sure sometimes couples come in and um, like they were going to get a divorce anyway, right? Like, like they were sort of already going in that direction. The energy was already there. And then you have couples on the other side of that who were probably going to be together anyway, even if things don't get, you know, that much better. And so knowing what the natural totally. course of marriages are or relationships or whatever. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I also think about like, I'm sure you've had couples like this too, where when you meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, I'm really out of this relationship, but I think I'm really concerned what's going to happen to it. <laughs> so here you go. <laughs> uh, I think I have one of those on, like, on a I, Monday. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> totally. And, and I get the concern and obviously, you know, relationships are, you know, they weigh heavy on us, but but yeah, so I, I, it's a complex thing. But you're right; like the real course of the trajectory of relationships is sometimes hard to know. Yeah. Um, 
anything else from that side of the side of the research that you like that's been interesting um the only other thing that we're doing right now is that we're doing a meta-analysis on couples therapy in naturalistic settings so not outside of rcts and we're actually finding that um couples therapy is actually probably more effective at increasing individual functioning versus couples functioning or relationship functioning how so right so simply yeah, right. So like if you think about like your own psychological well-being versus your relationship functioning well-being, it typically works better for individual well-being than relational. And I think in the couples world, you know, a lot of these studies don't even assess individual well-being. And I think that's a mistake in the field because what I'm what I'm curious about, I don't know the answer to this, is like what comes first? Do you have to feel better yourself for your relationship to feel better? Or does your relationship feel better and then you feel better? Like I think that directionality is probably bi-directional but like it really means something different if you know it could have some implications about should you start with couples therapy or should you start with some individual therapy first or what combination they're in so i think there's some interesting things um popping on that front and i know the hardcore like traditional systems people are like everything's a system so treat the system um that's how so, i was like, trained I, I do think that's <laughs> And so when people are like, oh, you're, you're going to see him individually? No, you can't do that. I'm like, whoa. Uh, and I still hear that voice in the back of my head from a supervisor. Um, <laughs> and, but I do think that like there's there's some, we need to expand our way of thinking about what what sets these things in motion in a way that like has long-term benefits for the couple. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Hmm, Okay. So one one more quick question, and then we're going to dovetail. In that first study that you talked about, and if you could send that article to me, I would love that. Was that couples, when when they were asked before the study, if they were both committed, if one of them was committed, or if they were going to end it, was that before therapy? Or was that? Yes. Okay. So then they got therapy for however many sessions. And so and it was a naturalistic setting in the old. Right. Yeah. So then their their state before therapy had a huge predictor on the outcome of the therapy then, in some ways. Totally. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I've I've included that in my personal practice. And I talk about how research informs practice. I was like, if that's going to be that predictive, I really want to know this from the gate. Oh yeah. And so now I've included it in my, my, my paperwork because it's just it's literally one question. Like, what's your goal? Get better, <laughs> improve the relationship, clarify you should stay or terminate. Like, I'm gonna so I'm gonna do that on like Monday. Like I'm gonna change my paperwork on Monday and <laughs> put that in there. That's incredible. Um totally. yeah. Okay. So I always like to also get a little bit of um a personal understanding of like how did you get into the field of counseling in general? Like where did that come from for you? Yeah, so um you know, it's interesting, especially the why like systems theory like spoke to me at first. So my mom is from Malaysia, um, and my dad's multi generational American grew up in Indiana, and so um, we grew up, or I grew up in a, a really small town in Indiana, like so small that like you waved to people as you drove by them, kind of small, um, and like kind of like Denver, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so the weird thing, I mean, Indiana is a really racist state and, um, it's actually the home, I think it's the home of the KKK. Like there's a lot of like, not good things, uh, to speak about in terms of race relations. And so I found myself as a young kid, um, mediating conversations with my mom and society because I mean, she speaks English just totally fine. Of course, she has an accent, and especially, uh, you know, 40 years ago, she had a little bit thicker of an accent. And so, like, I found myself in this kind of mediator role. And so, fast forward to college, I, I thought, and I love to, like, solve problems. And so, fast forward to college, I was thinking, I want to be a detective because I, I really want to, I want to solve crimes, you know, like, all the sensational stuff. And then I spent my first year in criminal justice as a major, and I was like, this sounds miserable. This is, like... I remember a professor was like, if you're here to help rehabilitate people, I have another thing. You have another thing coming. What we need is more bars and more walls. 
And I was like, whoa, that is not why I am here. And so at the same time, I was taking psych classes and I was like, okay, this is my jam. This is feeling good. Um, and, and then I, it just kind of progressed, you know, I went to University of Miami, got my master's there and it was just amazing. I was like, this is a fit for me. And, but the still inquisitive detective side was like, oh, I can do research and detect, you know, find solutions to things kind of. Um, and so like, it's it was one of those <laughs> things that kind of progressed from like, oh, I want to be a detective, but I guess I'll get my fix watching Criminal Minds instead of like <laughs> being a detective. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try to go help people. There you go. And so did you go into a uh, MFT program, an LPC program, something else? Yeah, it had dual tracks, the MFT track, and it had a uh, clinical mental health track. And I was in the clinical mental health track, but also got exposed to um, folks like, like, so Jose Sabatnik and Howard Little are down at Miami. And so our program was highly infused with a lot of their principles uh, that they taught. And it, it was just a fantastic place to be because it was a perfect combination of like systems influence with a lot of the professors there and um, just like a lot of buzz around MFT land that I was like, I like this. And so when I came out here to University of Denver, had a chance to work with Howard Markman, Scott Stanley, um, and I still do a lot of work with them in the couples world. And then it kind of reminded me like, oh, couples therapy and being a couples therapist is kind of like going back to mediating situations, right? Like, it's, <laughs> like my mom was teaching me something all these years of how to be a couples therapist. And so I think about that as not only a leader, but also like when talking about like broaching topics around multiculturalism, um, and seeing how some people do it well, some people, it's just like, a, it's natural. And they're like, wow, I want people to be able to do that. And similar to like being a couples therapist, you have to be able to hold things. You have to be able to tolerate intense conversations, arguments without overreacting, without shutting down. And I think the same thing is true about multicultural conversations that you, you have to be able to tolerate uncomfortable feelings. You have to tolerate what's going on in society, you got to tolerate all these things and still be able to be engaged. And so I think there is some natural progression in why, personally, I think MFT and, and systems people in general are way ahead of the curve when it comes to multicultural processes, because they've been thinking about systems for, for years, right? Like, they're not just thinking what's happening in this room, they're thinking what's going on outside of this room for this couple or this family that's influencing their life. And I think they've done it um, more consistently and better, not that it's competition, but like, I think there's a lot to be gained from what systems folks have brought into the multicultural conversations. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. That's why I got into this side of the field. Not, you know, not that I knew what I was doing at the time, but um, I got into this <laughs> side of the field because it r was about groups and I was like, well, that's obviously culture, right? <laughs> like, like, that's how groups of people interact. This is the same thing. Um, and a lot of our yeah. sort of leaders early on were people who were not, who were different, right? Like Gregory Bateson and Margaret, Margaret Mead were huge in the field. Um, yep. And for, you know, we had other people from other countries and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you say that. that. That's really encouraging. So how did you go on to do like a PhD, right? Because some, some people, they're like, well, I'm gonna go practice. And you decided, you know, I'm gonna go and like discover new terrains, right? Like, how did you make that decision? Yeah, so I just just never wanted to leave college, I don't think. <laughs> you were like me, you were really good at like school and you're like, oh, I can I can keep keep doing this. <laughs> I, mean, I can just keep on taking loans and not paying back yet. Um, so I, I think for me, like one of the things that I learned is like, I, I do enjoy therapy, I do enjoy, um, that process, I love the art of it, I love the science of it. I don't think I can do it full time. Hats off to those who can, but like, honestly, if I if I see like more than like five clients in a week, man, I'm out for the count on the weekend. I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> forget this, this is, this is draining. And I, I think for me, it's like, I give a lot, I, like I'm, I'm there, I wanna be with people in the therapy room, I wanna feel those emotions. I do a lot of interpersonal process, so I'm a system slash dynamic kind of, um, therapist and and so to me like yourself in the room is, is a big part of the process for me and so 
it does feel draining in a different way. I'm kind of an introvert by nature. And so like, I just knew I couldn't do that full time. And I love research. So like the nice thing about doing research is like, we just got done with a study. Um, it's actually published. It's called for worse or for better, trying to predict who, what couples actually get worse from a relationship education intervention than better. And this was a study with about 1,700 uh, individuals, so about 800, 700 some couples who all got this program. South side of Chicago, all black and Latino uh, couples, except for like the one token white couple that was in there. Token and like, white couple. Uh, <laughs> right, like whoever says that in it. Right? <laughs> uh, and so I think about that study, like, Sure, we're, we're doing some cool stuff in science, but like the real power of that study is that almost 800 couples got services that they would never be able to get um, if it wasn't for the study in this group in Chicago that, that, that ran the study. And I was just a statistician on it, but like being a part of that makes me feel good. Like to treat 800 couples, that's a lot of people to do individually <laughs> if you're just a solo therapist. Um, I mean, it would take you years to have that many couples. And yet we were able to kind of effectively um, influence more. So like, so on a different side, like I see research as a vehicle to help, especially marginalized communities get services that they would never get. And like, you know, we were able to pay those folks. We gave them, you know, child support and child care during the course of the study, all sorts of th things to make things accessible. And the barriers that we commonly see, especially for folks who are of lower economic status, especially that prohibit them from coming to Come to therapy, and so is that is that a new push in the field? You know, I was rereading my research text. And I was preparing to teach a research a research class, and they were so, um, what's the word? Um, they basically said that research has an ethical imperative to give back to the people who the people who they're studying. Is that I don't remember that in my master's program. Is that a new sort of push? Or has that always been in, in, in your side of the research of what you've seen in the in the field at like large or? I I don't know. I, I mean, it's a good point. Um, I don't remember getting trained that way. Right, but me I either. Do, yeah. yeah, like similar to your, your comment, like, but to me, like, I feel like there's uh, a moral imperative, right? That we have, I mean, I spent a bunch of money to get this education and if I can give back, to those individuals in a way that like, sure, we're doing a study on XYZ and hopefully the, the treatment will be beneficial, but that's why I love doing psychotherapy research. That's why I love doing intervention research at, as a whole. It's like, we get a chance to actually help communities. Um, yeah. And it, it was interesting. I was talking to uh, Frank Fincham down at Florida State, um, big in relationship world. And he even went a step further. He's like, we have a moral and ethical imperative to publish the data from these studies that we do with folks. If we just, you know, file drawer it, like that's unethical. Like these folks are spending their time and energy, even if it's just filling out surveys, they're giving their thoughts and opinions about things. And so we should do what we say we're going to do with this. And I was like, I appreciate that. So what did that study find? So it's interesting. I mean, fortunately, only a small percentage of couples get worse after going through this treatment. So that's the positive news. Um, and then we found some things that were, you know, interestingly, um, some, somewhat logical. Like if you do things in a group, couples group format versus individually with couples, the group format's less effective than kind of tailoring, which we'd kind of expect. But the kind of counterintuitive findings is that like couples that had lower levels of respect at baseline actually did better um, than other couples. So in some ways, in my mind, I think about it like this, and this is maybe going a little bit too far, but I think some couples, when they come into the couples therapy, they think everything's fine. And then after that first session, they're like, oh, I didn't know things were that bad. And so I think there's some pieces of this, like, oh yeah, sure, we're respectful to one another. And then realize, oh, we haven't been communicating about this stuff at all. Uh, so I, I do think there's a lot of good, good lessons to be thought about in terms of um, what couples are bringing in at, at the gate that can help us as clinicians to tailor that treatment. And I think we all think we're tailoring the treatment, but like, what exactly are we paying attention to is, is the question. Yeah, it's really interesting.
So look, let's use that to dovetail right into the MCO stuff, right? Um, sure, yeah. Because that's about tailoring the treatment to the person in front of you and paying attention to their cultural background. Absolutely. Um, so how did you get into that research and what are sort of like the, you, what's sort of like your big contribution to the field here? So um, when, I mean, this might be true for you too, Jordan, but like when I got trained um, in multicultural classes, we had one week on how to treat black folks, one week on how to treat uh, Latino folks, one week to treat the gay and lesbian folks. Like it was just like this kind of cookie cutter approach to uh, understanding identities. And like, there just wasn't enough research on things that I felt like are really true about therapy. And so um, should we learn more about um, how to treat black folks? Yeah, absolutely. But that's kind of like saying like all black folks are all the same, right? And obviously, you know, black folks aren't a monolith. There's a lot of diversity within the black communities and any other identity, just I mean, I'm choosing black identities as one. But like, I think about this in a different way, like what is it that's really important to the person sitting in front of me? So as a clinician, like there's not, a, there's not enough time in the day or in a lifetime to know, quote unquote, know everything about black culture or Hispanic culture or gay culture. There's just, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a degree. Every evolving itself. thing, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Should you do your work and learn that stuff? Absolutely. But so like in my mind, I was like, okay, so if, if, if it's not, if it's a relational thing, which I think therapy is a relational thing, then we should probably put it in a way that we naturally interact, right? And so I was reading and getting immersed in supervisors who would say things like, well, every single session, first session, ask them about their cultural identity and then ask them how they feel about working with you because you're in a different cultural identity. I was like, that's really bizarre. Um, <laughs> like, 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 I would never do that to anybody. Like, I don't go up to people on the streets and be like, oh, Jordan, you're black and I'm not black. Do you think this conversation is going to go well? Like, that, I would be kind of offended if somebody came up to me and asked me that kind of question. So I was like, where's the middle ground? What's cause the intent behind that is to understand each other and to understand cultural differences. So the real question to me was like, how do we get people to talk about their cultural identity in a way that's therapeutic and not just informational? So the goal there then is what values and beliefs do you have? And is it related to being a black man? Is it related to being a man? Is it related to other identities you might hold? Sure, that, let's unpack that. Let's talk about what the, those mean to you. And is it meaningful in terms of like a meaning making kind of conversation? And then the next piece to that is how do we tie that to treatment? Like, why are you here seeing me as a patient and do these worldviews and beliefs tie into a source of strength and healing that could be beneficial for you in this moment, right? So that was my ultimate goal, is to get to that point. Um, if it's not used therapeutically, then it's just voyeurism, right? Like if, if you're just giving people, like, tell me all about this experience that you had of being a black man growing up. But if it's not related to why you're there, then it probably feels more like you're educating the therapist about what it means to be black. And most people don't wanna do that. That's not what they're paying money for. They're paying to get better. So my thought was we need an attitudinal piece to this framework, which was cultural humility, right? So we need to engage in these conversations with curiosity, we need to engage in these conversations without superiority. And at the same time, being curious and being wondering about somebody's identity doesn't mean that they're teaching you about it. It may mean you need to be curious outside the therapy room and go do some homework, right? Like get your knowledge somewhere else, you know, and then try to contextualize it within the client, right? So what is this world experience like, right? I'm curious about that for you. You know, especially like I had a client, you know, during the Black Lives Matter marches, um, he was not coming to see me for, um, things around his racial identity, his relationship was on the, on the fritz. And when that, when that started, like the march had started and George Floyd was murdered, you know, I was like, you know, I know you're not here for this, but I'm curious about how this stuff is impacting you um, and your life. Like, do you want to spend some time talking about that, giving him permission to, to go down that route or not? Um, and we spent a good 10, 15 minutes on it. Um, 
and then he wanted to turn the conversation back to some of the relationship difficulties that's happened. Like, great. So we spent some time, we honored that, and then moved it back. So I think that the, this idea of humility and just kind of curiosity, I didn't want to assume that it was um, affecting him, but I also didn't want to like not say anything because obviously, you know, the world blew up and rightfully so. Um, so I, I think in those moments, the second pillar is like cultural opportunities. There's an opportunity there to have a conversation. He didn't start it. I started it. There's other times where other clients say things in session that are these kind of cultural markers that we can follow. So like I had a client who um, lost somebody, um, was murdered, and it was her grandmother. And it was this really tragic thing. And she talked about her depression, talked about the unfairness of all this. And then she mentioned some things about like losing her faith in God, right? Like how would God let this happen? And then she went on to talk more about her depressive symptoms. And like, she's like, what's the point of all this? What's the point of life? Kind of like some suicidal um, ideation there, right? So there's that opportunity where I could either focus on suicide or I could focus on her relationship with God, right? And so there's a decision point there. And so I went with the God angle, circled back at the end of the session to talk more about, um, you know, just to make sure that she wasn't suicidal. But talking about her relationship with God was this really powerful thing. We set up you know, do you still pray? And like, maybe we should reach out to somebody at your church because she's, she's not going to church. All these different kind of components that like played a key role for her, her healing. And, and so the last pillar in our MCO framework is cultural comfort. And so what I ask my students and people I train to do is when you're in a conversation um, that's culturally laden, take a gut check. Like, how are you feeling? Are you feeling comfortable in this conversation? Are you there's something coming up that's not fitting for you. And if that's the case, it's not a bad thing to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it's a sign that you probably need to process this with somebody, either a supervisor or a friend or colleague and try to figure out where that discomfort is coming from. Because I think that those moments are good learning lessons, right? Like we've all been in conversations like, ooh, this is not going well. Um, and it may be related to culture, it may not be, but if it is, then that's a good kind of gut check to, to get the conversation started. Because most people, and I do this in my life, I'm sure, Jordan, you've done this in your life too. When we feel uncomfortable, sometimes it's just easier to avoid those feelings and thoughts. And, and there's a concept within the, like the white fragility literature called information avoidance. And it's basically when people get kind of triggered in terms of feeling uncomfortable about cultural issues, they avoid informa any information about that topic, which is kind of how it's one of the reasons how racism perpetuates itself, right? So if you're white, you don't really have to think about race. And if you're forced to, then it's like probably, you know, uncomfortable feelings at times. But if you don't focus yourself and like, why am I feeling uncomfortable? What am I avoiding? Then you're perpetuating cycles of racism, right? So people in power, people who have these kind of social capital power need to do more things actively to check their power, to check how they're feeling in these spaces to to not impose uh, their own worldview on others. So ultimately th these three pillars, humility, opportunity, and comfort, they kind of all interact. And I felt like, you know, this is a cool way of training people, gut check on your cultural comfort. Are you taking cultural opportunities? And how curious are you? And I think that most people think, oh yeah, I'm humble. I you know, ask a lot of questions to my clients, but the real question that you should be asking yourself is what are you assuming about your clients? You know, I mean, I, I find these fascinating, like, you know, we have so little time to talk with our clients, right? 50 minutes. And so any given statement that's said, we're probably making an assumption about it and filing it into like some category in our brain. But is that the right thing to do? Um, and that's where humility and cultural humility in particular comes into play. Of like, what are you assuming about your clients? What are you assuming um, that's going on? Uh, without checking it out. And whenever we make a judgment about something and a quick judgment, that's when that should be the trigger sign for engaging culture humility. So how do you train people, right? Like, I mean, this is fascinating. And let's say that I was like, man, you obviously know what we're talking about and you're not coming at it from this perspective that feels stilted or scripted or weird. Like it feels there's an organicness to it, right? So like, do you yeah. offer trainings? Is it mostly at your university? So, you know, the students you come and, and have your class to get trained in or how do you? 
How do you, how would I learn more about this? Yes, I do do trainings. Um, We also have an MCO deliberate practice website, which um, you, myself and Tony, I was here have, uh, Tony has done a big heavy lift on a lot of those videos. And there's some great videos to kind of practice this. Um, If people want to contact me, I also have other videos and other kind of training, uh, like just kind of quick checks on yourself. Like what what can you do? but ultimately, like this is like a mind frame of like, if you're reviewing a session, like if you're a student out there and you're like thinking, what can I do today about this? Go back to your last session and listen throughout the entire thing. Is anything that you said related to the client's cultural values, related to, are you integrating that stuff into the session? And it doesn't have to be just with minority clients, but although I think that's more important at times, um, but like in general, like if you're treating it like, are you listening for gender scripts? Are you listening for um, racial identity development cues that might be happening? Are you listening for those things? That's what you should be thinking about. Like, if, is this actually an integrated session? We've done some studies with kind of the videos that we have up on the website. And I tell you, like, there's a lot of folks that don't ever address culture at all, even for clients who are explicitly talking about like cultural dilemmas in their life. And so if you're not even talking about it, not willing to name it directly, that's probably a good first step uh, for folks out there to think like, am I actually doing this? We did a case study where we did like a four week training with two students just to see like it, if this deliberate practice thing could actually work. And we did see gains um, in those four weeks with line reviewers coding videos of these two students. We saw gains and even just the interviews afterwards with the students, they're like, my supervisors have noticed that I'm integrating this more and a lot of, so it can be done. And the thing that I hear from a lot of folks when we do this training is like, this now gives me permission to mess up. It makes me, gives me permission to actually try it. And it gives me permission to know that like when I'm not doing this, that should be a, a sign to me that I'm maybe not doing this because we use the word orientation on purpose. So instead of multicultural competencies, which I got trained in, probably most people do, competency seems like a weird word when it comes to multicultural processes, right? Like at what point do you become competent? And I, I just don't think you can be competent, right? Because there's not like a manual for people. There's a manual for disorders. I would, I would even right? say, and you know, you tell me if this is wrong, I would even say so one of the things I, I was a member of uh, AAMFT's minority fellowship program. And I remember we had a bunch of different trainings that we had to go through with them. And one of the things that they said that always stuck with me was just because you're a member of a group doesn't mean you are, I think she said competent, competent to treat that group. But I think what you're talking about sort of dovetails into that as well, right? Of like, if my, or, if my orientation as a therapist is to work with my clients, um, cultural identities and other identities, mm-hmm. then I'm always looking for, you know, how do I do that with this client? And so even as a black therapist, seeing a black person, I'm not going to just assume, right? Because if yeah. if it's just a competency, well, I'm competent, I'm black, I know that, you know what I mean? Like I have that box checked. <laughs> but if it's, an, if it's an, an orientation, then the person in front of me I'm going to be curious and humble about, okay, how does this impact this person who's right here in front of me? Right. And I think, I mean, that's a great point, Jordan, because like, it sounds like what you're saying, if I hear you right, like, like it's probably easy to make assumptions that, that you're more similar to that, that black client, right? Like, but like, that's the point where you should like step back and be like, well, maybe their experience is a little different, right? Like maybe, and, and I was in a conversation recently with somebody who was uh, Mexican American and I asked the question, like, what things have you learned in life that you just take for granted and never question? And the, the response was, I thought all my family would be on the same side when it comes to the election. And I learned at Thanksgiving, we were not on the same side. And I was like, that's, that's interesting. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it's easy to make those assumptions without checking it out, having a conversation about it. So how does this relate to outcomes? You know, at the at the beginning, you said, yeah, like I'm about outcomes and I want to understand the outcomes of therapy and how does this relate to, to outcomes? Yeah, so um, we have now, I think studies with over seven, 8,000 clients wow. in total. Um, yeah, um, 
that show that people who endorse, you know, other therapists is more humble, takes more opportunities, is more comfortable, have better outcomes. And we see this in individual therapy and group therapy. Interestingly, even though my passion for couples therapy is there, I have yet to put the MCO framework into a couple's frames. So maybe you can help me with that at some point. Um, but, but there's just, it shows really good outcomes. It's connected to stronger working alliances, which I think is kind of the fuel of a lot of things in therapy. And so good stuff is happening. The interesting thing, we just finished a study on MCO in a jail setting. So therapy in jails. Wow. And we found that, yeah, we found that uh, cultural humility was negatively related to better outcomes. So the more humble you were in the jail, the less, which to me, I don't know. Like, I mean, this is why I love doing research because I'm like, what is going on? Um, and, and, and my thought in like talking to some of the therapists in the jail, um, they're like, yeah, they don't want you to be curious about their life. They want you to get shit done. <laughs> and I was like, well, that, maybe that's an interesting perspective that spending a lot of time being curious or being, um, having that humility stance may signal to some folks that you're not here for me. Let's do this, this, and this. Because the alliance was related to better outcomes. And so maybe it's more of the doing, doing stuff. Because this was short-term treatment in the jails. But I don't know. It's going to be interesting to try to unpack what's actually going on for mm -hmm. For that study but so i say all that to say is that like most studies are pointing in the right direction this is the first study that we have that's pointing not in that direction so i think in general context matters about what where you're at and who you're treating and what the yeah. priorities are yeah and probably also what they expect i don't know if people in jail want to i would imagine if i were in jail or in some sort of prison i wouldn't want to be vulnerable and talk about like you know like some cultural identity. I don't want to be like, okay, what do I need to do to get out of a role as fast as possible when I'm out of here or whatever, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, all the therapists in the study were students. And so the other kind of thing I was wondering is like, as a student, were the uh, clients seeing humility as a stance of like, you don't know what you're doing because you're asking so many questions or, you know, maybe yeah. coming off curious might seem incompetent. I don't know. Um, but I do agree. Like, I think they just want, you know, you have eight sessions, you want to get your, your needs met and you want to make sure you're right to get out. Right. So, I know. Um, so how does all this relate to, you know, I've read lots of studies that say like therapist, gender, sexual orientation and ethnicity doesn't predict outcomes. And so it sounds like what you're saying is the difference is not, you know, your identity, but your your ability to be curious about the client's identity. Yeah, I I mean those you're absolutely right. Those kind of like more static predictors, um, not only don't predict outcome, but I think, to be honest with you, like research going down that line, I'm not sure what the implications are, right? Because the field in general needs to diversify for sure, but like. Even if like, if I'm a man and I realize that women do better therapy than I, do I just hang it up? <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> Guess I'm not good at this. Yes, uh, yes, yes we do. <laughs> we just so, call it. <sighs> just call it. I, I also think about this from a real practical, I was treating uh, this African-American woman, single mom, and initially she wanted a black therapist and there, we didn't have a black therapist on staff. And, uh, about midway through like four, session four or five, I was just doing like a mid check in like, hey, how you doing? Um, how are we doing? And she's like, you know, initially I, I wanted a black therapist, but like, I see that you get me. And like that comment to me was like, okay, I'm in, in a good way with her that she feels connected, that she feels like I'm hearing her uh, struggles. And so I think about that experience for, for her, right? That was a positive experience with me, even though I didn't have the identity that she wanted from the gate, being curious, being humbled by her story and her life and her struggles, that made the connection for her. And so I think the reason why those static predictors are not great predictors is because there's a genuine human process that happens. And I'm not saying that some that we don't need a match at times, for sure. Like if that's really an important thing for the client, yeah, let's do it. 
but if it's if it's not or if it's not possible you got to do you got to be a better therapist right you got to be a better multiculturally oriented therapist yeah that's really powerful okay man so look i know um I want to be very respectful of your time. We talked for almost an hour. I have a few more questions. Is it okay if we yep. go for 15? Yep. Yeah. Um, so let's just, we'll do like three, three, three more questions. What else in terms of outcomes have you, have you learned? Um, I learned, so one of my frustrations, I mean, obviously, you know, when you make the sausage, you know what's going into it. You see what's happening. <laughs> And for better, for worse, on that on that note, um, I think that what we should be paying attention to is outcomes. I think that that's an important component to it. I do think sometimes researchers put too much emphasis on the final session outcome versus like what I consider like smaller outcomes, like session outcomes. Like, did it? I might not be feeling any better at the end of treatment, but do I have I learned new things? Have I integrated new things about myself? May it not connect to maybe I'm just living in a shitty situation, so my life functioning isn't going to change. But am I learning and making meaning for myself? And so, especially with my students, I'm like think about the the many steps along the way, especially for some clients who are like, you know, they're in the shits, you know, especially like if, if you've ever and I know you have Jordan worked with divorcing couples they're not going to get, they're not going to feel better right away. Like divorce is, can be painful. It can be a mess. And so like to think like four sessions or five sessions with that person, they're going to feel better. Maybe a little bit, but probably you might be giving them better skills to manage the situation. But I think that's the one piece about outcomes that we should not forget about the smaller steps. And especially as a student, if, if you're doing, you know, learning, trying to learn how to do therapy, Look for those small victories about what happens at the end of a session or throughout a session, um, because that's I think where the juice is. Yeah, I mean that's just true, right? Like, I, I, there's so many extra yeah. extra therapeutic things that happen that like the outcome sometimes is not even in your in your hands. You know. Yeah, I, I also think that we did a study or we looked at this kind of from a more data driven place, but like if you think about therapy outcome studies. They're looking at the first session and the last session and checking the difference, right? That's your classic therapy outcome study. Well, if your therapy is going up and down, so the person's very volatile in their, in their mood, the difference between their last session and their session before could be really huge, right? They, might, they could just end on a really high note, but maybe the next week they're back down to a very low note. You just happen to capture them at that last session. So I think the other thing that we should be thinking about when it comes to therapy outcomes is how consistent are those last few sessions? Are they consistently marking good, right? And if you think about it from a clinician standpoint, once your client's like two or three sessions in at the end, you're like, hey, I'm still doing good. Hey, I'm still doing good. Then you're like, we should be probably talking about termination here because we're just chatting at this point yeah. or whatever, you know? Um, and I think that consistency at the end is probably a better indicator of what we can do as therapists. Yeah. And I don't I don't think we look at that very well in research. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that reminds me of uh, the uh, Uri, Uri Vlas study, the lady in Australia who's doing wonderful work. And they looked at her, they looked at clients I think you had had like gains for like two sessions after the massive gain, right? Like, and I'm like, at first I didn't get it, but they're answering, they're, they're trying to answer that, that question. This person made this massive gain after working with Ari, and has it been maintained? Because if not, yes. then it's not the same thing. It's 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 not. Um, yeah, it's just not as. I don't know what the word is, but it's 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 not as um, stable a change. I don't know. Totally. Yeah, and I and I think you know, you know most clinicians just like that that example, right? Sure, it's great to see a big gain, but like, what we're really caring about is like stability. Um, and we shouldn't just be thinking about that with like people who have, you know, bipolar or borderline personality disorders. Like we should be thinking about that for all of our clients that we want stability in their life and that should be a marker for us. How often, this is something I've, I've been wondering, how often is the um, mental illness itself cyclical? And do you know any research about that? You know, like how many times, because sometimes clients come in and they feel better. Um, 
and we think that it's us and sometimes <laughs> it is right but how often is is the mental illness itself sort of this fluctuating sort of experience do you know any research on that i don't uh the only thing i remember when i taught psychopathology years ago one of the site one of the quotes for like depression is like untreated depression typically gets better after six months yeah and so to your point i think there is some kind of cyclical course life course of these things even not untreated i also wonder though um like d does it have to be six months right could, right. could we have cut them down um, yeah if treated but That's yeah I, I, be, it's a fascinating question okay so that's your stuff on outcomes. Are you doing any other research on outcomes? I want to make sure that we give you proper time for that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing, um, some of the stuff that I'm doing right now is really looking at at least um, what, I, what I want to be focused more on is context. And so we did a study looking at college counseling centers, and this is getting published in Journal of Counseling Psych. So when we looked at what percentage of the campus is white at these different counseling centers, and basically, if the campus is more white, white students do better in therapy, right? Which is kind of an interesting kind of social capital. <laughs> Maybe not the best move for, um, for racial ethnic minorities. But, and so racial minorities did basically the same at, at, across universities, but it was the white folks who benefited from being on white campuses. And so we have to think about what's the, why aren't um, racial ethnic minorities doing better on more diverse campuses or white campuses, because that disparity at the end for whites versus racial minorities is, is pretty uh, pretty interesting to me from a context, right? Going back to systems kind of thinking like the campus you're on matters. And if you're you know, a brown or black person on a predominantly white campus, those white folks are doing better than you, right? Like they're getting better <laughs> treatment than, yeah. or, or at least having better results. And so I do think that we as therapists need to and this is not going to be too big of a surprise for systems folks. We need to get out of our offices. We got to think about the policies. We got to think about the messages that are going on. Even if you're on a predominantly white campus, like what? How are you being inclusive of minority folks? And so I, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done You've, in a context-specific way. Absolutely, and I, I think this relates to this. I want to make sure that we're on the same page. You've used the word a few times, social capital. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of good work by Putnam and colleagues on social capital. What, the way that I understand this is kind of a couple dimensions. Social capital is benefiting from being in a particular identity because there's other people who share that identity, right? So like if you think about white folks on a predominantly white campus, you can just walk around and see a whole bunch of people who look like you, right? Um, and so that gives you some capital in terms of like, oh, I can do more things here. I belong here. I feel better here. The other piece of social capital is in some ways having more access to things, right? Having more access to resources or um, other things because of that identity status. And I think that's also true. We see that coming in spades in terms of a lot of different areas in society, in the world of, um, I'm not, I don't have to tell you, like, you know, white folks can get into a car speed down the road and not worry about what's going to happen if I get pulled over, right? Like, that's not their thought. They're like, oh, this is going to be a fun ride, right? Like, there's a lot of these things that, like, uh, we, like folks just don't have to think about. And the mental energy that that takes for minority folks is taxing, right? So they're spending their energy and their capital on worrying about things because society is set up in a way uh, that's not benefiting them. Yeah. And so there's a lot of other definitions of social capital, but like, that's kind of what sticks in my mind. That sticks in your mind. Yeah. All the ways people have um, certain privileges because of where they're, because of the context in which they are in. Yeah. And you can start to think even within more micro uh, kind of groups, right? Like I have a lot of social capital because I'm a tenured full professor. So I can go, I can do things. I can say things. Um, within reason, obviously, but like, I'm, I don't have to worry about <laughs> getting uh, fired if I push back a little bit on a policy that I don't like or, yeah. And so that's a different kind of social capital based on my educational status. Yeah. Okay. Um, last, last two questions. 
what do you think is on the tip of the spear, right? Obviously you're on the edge of the field and because you're on the edge of the field, I think you can see further than some of us. So what do you think is on the leading edge, the tip of the spear that we should be looking at now or that so, everyone will be thinking about in 10, 15 years? I mean, I think um, this pandemic has brought to light and has pushed people to be more comfortable with technology. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, even this podcast, right? Like th this would be a cool conversation over a cup of coffee. Um, one day, one day. One day. <laughs> um, but the fact that we're both comfortable just sitting here on Zoom like this, like that to me just speaks like, okay, people have been pushed more towards technology. I think the next generation of research that's gonna come out is gonna be very technology-based. I think um, my colleagues like Dave Atkins and Zach Immel um, their platform called Listen um, is a good example where you just have a session, it records it, and it automatically generates who talked the like who talked the most. What's your? They, it gives you an empathy rating. It tells you how many open-ended questions, how many complex reflections you gave. Like automatically, just pr provides this feedback to you. And I think that's important for this one crucial stat that I've been kind of wrestling with. In most programs that don't have like live observation, the amount of sessions that are observed by a supervisor or anybody else is less than 1% of uh, the sessions that you'll ever have as a trainee. Yeah, so like, I mean, I mean just think about it. Like, I mean, I supervise too, and like, I have my supervisees bring in a portion of tape. We don't typically watch the entire session. We watch maybe 15 minutes or fast forward to different points. And then that's just one client that they've seen maybe 10 that week. So we watched 15 minutes out of 10 hours of work that they did. I mean, right? Like, and we're hoping that that's representative of what their work actually is. And now like, to me, like from a multicultural standpoint, now imagine like you're that supervisor and that's the only 15 minutes you've seen them do work with somebody from a marginalized background. And are we as educators supposed to like make judgments about how competent they are based on that 15 minutes of one client from one from one back? Like, it's just mind blowing. So I think technology is the answer to have a better track record of what we're doing in session. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I just spoke with our friend Simon. Uh, yeah. About this. Simon yeah. yeah, and uh, he's made, he makes a very compelling case. <laughs> it's a very compelling case, you know? So, yeah. yeah, very cool. And that's, I mean, that's kind of amazing. Like, Simon is a huge uh, mindfulness person, too. So, like, he blends, like, these two worlds together in a way that makes sense. And we're actually doing a study with him, um, one of my former students, Shakira, looking at um, if we can do machine learning to predict cultural humility. Mm. And so... Wow. Like, I mean, that's, that's the level of like next generation of like, how do we provide real feedback to folks based on technology in a way that's accurate, right? That's yeah. the other piece of this. We have to not chase the technology train too fast if it's not as we're refining this. So. Okay, man, last question. What's on your nightstand? If, if, if we were to follow you into your, into your bedroom, what are you, what are you reading? You know, what's the book that you're perusing? What am I I'm at, this is going to sound really super nerdy, um, but I'm actually reading Scott Miller's new book on better outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> better results, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Better, yeah. Um, I love his writing. Like, he's one of those people, like, he, he could just write, like, what he's doing today. And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> great, great. he's just a great human being and one of those people that I'm like, man, he just speaks to, to clinicians in a way that, like, most of us can't do in terms of writing, especially as researchers when we get too much in our head. Yeah. But he, he balances that world. And I, I think any read of his is, is a good one. So. Yeah, Scott's incredible. He's one of my uh, heroes. I think he's one of the best therapists. I think he's one of the most important voices in psychotherapy for the past 100 years. And hopefully he doesn't go down and be forgotten because his work is so important. I mean, people, sh he should yeah. be sort of, and not just him, right? There are other people who are doing that, but he's popularized a lot of that stuff and that's just a powerhouse. Yeah, and I mean, his trainings and stuff that he's doing overseas as well. Like, I think he's just, and he's such a kind human being. He's really oh, yeah. in my career. And so anyways, I agree with you. And so 
folks are listening, if you want to read anything good um, in terms of psychotherapy, he is a great writer. Yeah, if you want to check out Scott, check out his um, blog. I think it's Scott Miller, PhD, or something like that. I'll put it in the show notes, which is a great sort of intro into if you want to read more about him. And he's got tons of stuff up up there. What about for you, man? Where can people find find you if they want to follow you? And So um, we do have an MCO website. We do have, and I can send you the link. Um, the other thing that, not to, a little shameless plug here, the, Please, yes. our, book, um, our book that's Josh Hook was the lead author, Donnie Davis and Curleen uh, DeBlair, and I wrote a book on culture humility, um, and it really does kind of capture a lot of this MCO stuff, and it talks and it kind of walks you through from a therapeutic standpoint, like what to do, not what to do, but like how to, how to embrace some of these, and there's good exercises in there. I think to me, I'm like, this is, it's a good compliment for any like multicultural class or just if you want to just beef up on, you know, MCO. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, man. I've enjoyed this so, so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for the time. Space. All right.